2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my very favorite guest ever for all time, Tom Philpot. Is joining me today. Tom is now working at the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University, uh, which he joined in 2022 as a senior research associate after nearly 30 years in journalism, most recently as the former food and agricultural respondent for Mother Jones. That was 2011 to 2022. And that's when Tom and I got to know each other, although I was watching your byline even before that. Um when you were with uh GriST, which became the first national publication to assign a regular staffer to the food policy beat um and when it hired Tom um the most important thing to think about right now with regards to Tom is his twenty twenty book Perilous Bounty. Has it really been three years already his twenty twenty book Perilous Bounty? was named as an editor's pick by the New York Times Book Review and shortlisted for a New York Public Library Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism. It also came out in paperback in June of 2022. So if you didn't get the hardcover, you can get the softcover now. And Tom would say thank you very much. Perilous Bounty has received in-depth reviews in the New York Times Book Review and the New York York Review of Books. And the reason we're talking today with Tom, uh, not only because I always enjoy talking with Tom, but because in a chapter of his book, Perilous Bounty, he described what appeared to be an unimaginable scenario. Um, And um, I want you to take us back to sort of like the genesis of that chapter, chapter two, as I recall. And you described the great flood in California's Central Valley of 1862. Tell us about that event and then place it in the context of current events.
3: Right, okay. Well, so in 1861, California is a pretty new state. It's been a state for a few years. The gold rush has, has raged and brought in lots and lots of settlers. Um, the state's recently been transferred over from Mexican um, sort of control, now it's part of the United States. And there is this, as there really has been since the very beginning up till today, this sort of, um, you know, boom mentality in California. Mm. And so 1861, the gold rush is starting to wear off. People are, you know, peak gold has been reached. Um, There's just more miners than there is gold. (laughs) People are trying to figure out, U.S. settlers are trying to figure out what to do next. Um, Native Americans are living in this what's now the Central Valley. Um, there's some, you know, sparse cattle ranching by these Mexican rancheros who had owned the land under sort of a deed from the King of Spain, and they're now American citizens. Um, and you've got U.S. settlers eyeing that land and thinking, huh, if we could take that over, we could grow food for these budding metropolises of San Francisco Bay Area, um, you, know, a, a, you know, Sacramento, and um, wouldn't that be great? Um, well, just that very winter, 1861, this storm starts in California in December, um, and it just rains continuously for about a month and a half. And we now know that these would be what we call atmospheric rivers, which are these storms that develop deep in the South Pacific, um, where it's really warm in the South Pacific Ocean. Um, you got a lot of evaporation. The water comes up into the atmosphere and basically shoots in these uh, vast river-like streams, um, you know, high above the, the earth um, to California, where they get hit by this, uh, where, where they hit the Sierra Nevada mountains and fall as snow. And that's sort of what California's winters are all about. Well, you had this gargantuan series of atmospheric rivers that year that were just coming nonstop. Um, And so this, you know, amazing amounts of rain and snowpack builds up, and then rain hits this snowpack. And what you get by 1862, early in the winter, is this incredible flood. Um, The entire Central Valley, So anyone who's been, you know, driven um, not the coastal route, but the sort of interior route from LA to San Francisco or back has been through the Central Valley. It's this vast region that is, you know, more than 400 miles long and 50 to 60 miles wide. Wow. Um, The entire thing comes under something like 20 feet of water. And it's this cataclysm. Unbelievable. um,
1: 20 feet of water from 400 miles North to south and yeah. whatever. Un- absolute. Uh, okay, apocalyptic,
3: in other words. Apocalyptic. And, you know, Sacramento, uh, which is the capital of this, you know, fledgling state, um, it's on the edge of the Central Valley. It goes underwater. Um, there's a, a change in governorship. And I believe it's Mr. Leland Stanford, who um, is a, a very famous and important figure in a lot of ways, is elected governor, and he literally goes to his inauguration on a canoe because the, <laughs> the city of Sacramento um, is so flooded. And, um, and, and so this, this happens and, you know, one of the things about this sort of California spirit of, of the time is, you know, it's obviously a catastrophe. It obviously wipes out these, these cattle ranchers um, completely. All the cattle are, um, you know, basically die. You can't get them out of the valley. Right. Um, and, um, you know, really interestingly, there's contemporary accounts uh, suggesting that native Americans um, could kind of see what was transpiring and it wasn't like, Oh, maybe it'll rain. T- it'll stop raining tomorrow and everything will be fine. Um, they figured out, um, you know, based on sort of, you know, knowledge of the landscape, having, you know, lived there for generations and generations, uh, historical memory, um, they realized it was time to get the hell out. And um, (laughs) so Native American populations largely escaped this, um, this catastrophe. Um, And, you know, besides Native American populations, it was fairly sparsely populated, although, you know, uh, people did die in Sacramento. There's accounts of, like, houses floating. Um, You know, there's... There's dead cows everywhere. Um, it's a real mess. Um, and then, you know, um, it, it it happened at the um, at the very end of a long drought in the Central Valley and the year after another drought started. Um, so it, you know, eventually dries up. The Mexican cattle rancheros are ruined. They basically sell their land for pennies in the dollar to these white settlers. Um, and the white settlers are... Um, well they they can't reestablish cattle agriculture because there's just not enough resources or money to restock hundreds of thousands of cattle and so what you get is the sort of dawn of the modern era of central Valley farming you get um you know grain grain ranching going on, you get um wheat ranching and what starts there at that time is this um this really epic fight by these these white settlers to control the wild water resources of California—the uh, this sort of um, variable uh, snowpack that brings this incredible water resource every year. But if um, you know if you don't do something with it, 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 most of it runs into the ocean through the San Francisco Bay Delta, through all this Ooh. network of rivers. Um, the struggle to control that resource begins in earnest. Um, And, you know, they also figure out that they have this massive store of groundwater, this uh, sort of um, aquifer water underneath them that is built up over millennia of water moving through the area. Um, And so you get, you know, sort of the the birth of what becomes this behemoth of California agriculture in the 20th century, um, moving into the 21st century.
1: Right, right. Staggering. So, since it has become an epicenter for the American and global food supply, plus there's huge amount of dairy. Okay, there's big crops there. There's big dairy there. There's big oil there. So, what, like right now, and oh, before we go there, let's talk for a second about the Tulare ba- Lake Basin because as part of the sort of management of the groundwater didn't they more or less drain that lake and the wetlands and you know they sort did. of they did so what what is that how does that figure into the potential for catastrophic flooding in the present well,
3: day w- one thing we should we should also note is that so this thing happens is probably the biggest natural catastrophe in US history mm. Um, you know, on sort of U.S. territory
1: that you've never heard of,
3: yeah. <laughs> right? And it, it, it com- yeah, it completely vanishes from the historical imagination. Now that that is changing um, because of uh, of recent events, people are thinking about it, talking about it. Um, but you know, I you know, when I was researching my book in the late 2010s, I I talked to multiple um, you know multi generation Californians who. You know, our history buffs, they hadn't heard of it. Wow. I talked to water people uh, who, you know, work at places like the Army Corps of Engineers and um, and that sort of, um, you know, governmental bodies that oversee California's water uh, uh, infrastructure. They were like, huh? You know, I, I don't wow. really know about that. Wow. Uh,
1: and, That's what
3: it, and it. so it <laughs> vanishes from the, his, you know, sort of the historical memory um, and, and save for some very heroic figures that I talk about in my book, who've kind of like unearthed it. But, um, but, so th- there has been this effort in the past um, probably 30 years uh, by a group of researchers. And the, the one I talked to, the one who's sort of been the most public facing is this amazing scholar named B. Lynn Ingram at, um, at Berkeley. She's a paleoclimatologist. And, um, and so she, um, she dug into the paleo record of the state by looking at stuff like um, sediment uh, buildup in streams in areas around the uh, California Bay Delta, I'm sorry, the San, uh, San Francisco Bay Delta uh, and other places in the Central Valley. And what she found was, and confirmed by other scientists, this is now in the scientific record, that there have probably been five to six storms much bigger than the 1861-62 cataclysm in the past thousand years. And so if we do the math, we can say that these events happen every 100 to 200 years, Um, and, you know, it happened in 1861. The Spanish, when they controlled the region, they experienced nothing like it. So the, the one that happened in 1861, 62 was the big one since European contact mm-hmm. uh, with, with this continent. Um, and, um, but the suggestion is these, they happen every 100, 200 years. And, and so, you know, the last one happened about 150 years ago. So already you start to get a little um, clammy in the hands thinking about it, right? <laughs> Uh, Yes, that's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Then the climate scientists come in and they they look at climate models for the sort of weather dynamics in the South Pacific with these atmospheric rivers that I talk about. And what they figure out is that if you add warming temperatures, a warmer ocean, hotter, you know, hotter temperatures above the ocean in that region, um, what you get is that the um, climate change means that this frequency is actually greatly increased. Uh, and there's this other incredible scientist. Um, he's at UCLA and, um, he, um, and I, 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 he, he has a few different positions. He's very much in demand named um, Daniel Swain and everyone should follow him on Twitter. He's <laughs> at Weather West. Uh, and just an incredible researcher and communicator about this stuff. And what what they find is that they've done multiple papers in the past five years, even since my book came out, that um, a, 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 a event on the level of 1861, 62 is more likely than not in the last in the next twenty years because of this historical pattern supercharged by climate change, um, and so you know one of the things that I always think about is we built this incredible infrastructure in California over the past century or so to capture this snow melt and divert it to farm, to, to farms. And we built right. this um, agricultural behemoth in the area. 80% of that water goes to farms. I think it's more like 90 uh, mm. for uh, the, for that particular watershed, which is the main lifeblood uh, for water in the state, the Colorado river being the other one. And, right. um, and um and so we've built this infrastructure up at a relatively calm period in history of of the state and uh, where it's been you know we we get occasional floods and 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 wet events and we get occasional droughts, but it's been fairly stable, and that is beginning to unravel before our eyes um you know the other thing that the paleo climate shows in addition to these um these crazy uh, rain events is that you also get uh, long periods of drought, literally mega droughts. And Which they've they, had. Right. And, and they yeah. are two sides of a coin, the right. way the weather dynamics work. They, they It's just sort of how the region is. And the stability that we've been counting on for 150 years uh, since the U.S. took it over uh, is completely unraveling. Uh, part of it is a reversion to the mean. Um, this is a very chaotic Uh, area for weather. And part of it is supercharged by by climate change. Um, And so that's kind of where we are. And then enter 2022, 2023 winter.
1: Right. We have snowpack that totals, I I read the statistic the other day, but I forgot it. It was 244 inches or something like that. Or I don't know what that that translates to what, like 12 feet of snowpack. And so... And, and, and so you know, let's
3: just let's just say that it's um, it's four times um, the the usual amount at this time of year, and in wow. the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley, it is by far the highest in recorded history. Um, no way! Is what I heard from. Yeah, that's what I heard from from Daniel Swain. Like that. Um, I didn't
1: know that. Whoa! The, the
3: southern and the central snow, the, the central California snowpack, which. Gets into other parts of the San Joaquin Valley. The Central uh, Sierra Nevada snowpack is also probably record smashing uh, as well. Um, so there is, as we speak right now, there is an incredible amount of of water in the form of snow locked up there, waiting to come down.
1: And right now they're they're trying to, um, they're trying to predict how rapid the snow melt will be. So that they can figure out basically how to keep this water from inundating the entire Tulare Lake Basin, right? That's correct. And let's
3: let's just pause for a second to um, talk about the Tulare Lake Basin. So most of the Sierra Nevada mountain range, when it melts, as it you know does every year, as the snow melts every year. It's diverted into rivers that ultimately go into this massive delta, this you know unimaginably huge delta. The Cal- is called the San Francisco Bay Delta, mm-hmm. um, and um, and it goes out to the sea. Now a whole bunch of that water is diverted into um, into agriculture, into you know canals and dams, dams and canals and reservoirs to, sure. uh, for agriculture. Um, but there is this safety valve that if that infrastructure can't handle it. It just gushes out to the sea, and so um, you have to get a really extreme event to get massive flooding. In uh, in that case, um, the southern part of the um, of the region is called the Tulare Basin, and it um, it was the home until um, the early part of the twentieth century of the biggest lake in uh in north america west of the um west of the mississippi river wow Tulare lake was this massive lake now it was it did fluctuate dramatically um, year to year uh, and season to season because it is fed by the snowpack so the southern snowpack has nowhere to go but this lake now these agricultural interests these uh, incredible um sort of settler farmers uh, in the early 20th century, they they basically drained the lake and built dams for the water. And there is this incredible book co-authored by Mark Arax, who is really the great chronicler of this um, of this region, called "The King of California." And it's about this uh, about a certain Mister Boswell, who was a from a, a cotton farming family in Georgia and all that that implies in the early, so in the early part of the, um, the 20th century. Right. And the, uh, the Georgia cotton uh, farmers had basically burned the soil and they also were overtaken by boll weevils. Um, and so Georgia cotton farming started to not be so great anymore. So Mr. Boswell moved his operation to the Tulare, ba- uh, lake, Tulare lake Basin where the land was very cheap because it was so soggy, it was basically a right. lake. Um, and he was instrumental in sort of restructuring the, um, the, the ecosystem there and draining the lake and making this empire that still exists to this day of cotton. You know, the Boswell family has, um, has diversified into things like pistachios and almonds, but they still have a lot of cotton ground up there uh, or down there, I should say. And, um, and so... You know, so that's where we are. We have this the you know the bottom third essentially of the the Sierra Nevada mountain range, which goes all the way along the, the Central Valley. All, you know that entire four hundred miles or mm-hmm. so. Um, it, the bottom third of it drains into this area that has no outlet to the sea. Um, right, and so that is a very terrifying situation. Um, and um, and so what happened this year was I. Was monitoring the situation um, because you know I had written a whole you know a a book a whole chapter about the possibility of a flood, and I was getting a lot of um, questions from people about you know is this the big one? Because we kept getting these atmospheric rivers, right? And what it turned out was that it really wasn't the big one. Um, The total amount of precipitation was very heavy. But it you know, was maybe, I, I think it probably ended up in the top 10 of the past 100 years, but it wasn't like extreme. It was you know, a pretty small fraction of 1861, 62. So it's not this big one storm, but in that part of the valley, it kind of was the big one. It was this right. historical amount of snow and rain. And so you already had flooding this past spring, parts of the lake refilled, Um, But the the thing that is so nerve wracking and terrifying is that we are, um, you know, we're going to be in massive flood risk in that area for the next two months because this massive snowpack that's four times the normal, that's probably, you know, no more than 5% melted as we speak, is just waiting there and it's too much for the infrastructure to take. Um, there's just not capacity in the in the canals and the dams and and the reservoirs to um, to soak it up. And so there is going to be flooding. There's flooding right now. I'm um, just reading a Guardian piece about there's satellite imagery of the lake bed refilling. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very, very nerve wracking situation
1: right We're going to take a short break here for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Tom Philpot. Stay tuned for more information about the potential risks of flood in Southern in California.
2: This episode is brought to you by Robertas, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. So, Tom,
1: the question that springs to my mind is—well, many questions, um, as you could tell from my uh, outline—but, but, <laughs> but yeah. the with all of the, um, with all of the types of industry, uh, you know, the the row crops, the dairy, the oil—are um, these all? Let's identify where they are. Are these all in that in that particularly risky area? There, there's two
3: kind of two areas to think about. Well, kind of, sort of three areas to think about. But with the the, the question that you're getting at, there's really two areas. There is the Tulare Lake Basin, which is essentially the whole last third, the whole bottom third of the the Central Valley. Right. Um, And then there's the old Tulare Lake bed, which is a smaller region. It's um, it's about. Um, you know, half a million acres, or you know, four hundred thousand to half a million acres. Okay, uh, which is a good amount of land. Yeah, um, and um, and so you know, in the greater basin in in Kern County, which is um, just a little bit south of um, of the lake bed, there is uh, incredible concentration of oil production. Um, if you anyone has ever driven out there. You see the oil derricks everywhere. You see them in farm fields. You see them, you know. There's a a, a grim uh, vista from the city of Bakersfield, where you can just look mm-hmm. at this sea. You know, this high point in Bakersfield, where you can look down into the into the, onto the land and just see this sea of oil derricks, and the air just looks dodgy because it is because all sorts of air pollutants are being put into the air by, by this, this oil production. And, you know, researching my book, I found that, you know, if you looked at Kern County as a state, it's something like fourth or f- would be fourth or fifth most oil producing state in the United States. Wow. Um, ahead of Louisiana, which um, made my jaw drop. Yeah, yeah. So all <laughs> that is pretty low lying land that is prone to flooding right now. It's not in the old lake bed. Um, but we've already seen flooding in the oil fields and um, and that would have disastrous. I mean, I think it's just like it's so ugly to think about because, you know, what what ultimately happens to that water is that, you know, it's, let's say you get a big flood in an oil rich region. W- what happens to that water is, you know, a lot of it evaporates, but that just concentrates the, the toxins in it. And then the rest of it seeps down and where does it go when it seeps? Well, it goes into the groundwater. It goes into, yes. the, into the aquifer. Um, and so that's pretty ugly to contemplate. Um, and then you get, you know, you know I hope, I, I, I don't have any reporting on this, but I hope there is a big push to get um, agrochemicals out of, you know, onto higher ground, out of flood danger, Because, you know, in an area that is, you know, essentially all under either oil or, you know, mostly agricultural production, there's a lot of fertilizers and pesticides sitting around waiting to be used. Right. Um, You don't want to see that swamped. And then um, the the Tulare and you know, cotton, there's a lot of cotton still in the old lake bed. And um, cotton is a very chemical intensive crop. So there's definitely a lot of pesticides and fertilizers involved with cotton production. Um, And then you get the the whole question of cows. And and so uh, one of the things that stunned me, I so. Let me just say that this is an area very dense. Even the old lake bed has multiple giant dairy, like dairy kafos, like you know, massive.
1: Yeah, tens um, of thousands of cows in yeah, each
3: facility. Yes. massive operations. Um, you go out of the lake bed; the whole area is just full of these industrial scale dairy farms, and um, and so you know, when I was you know researching the book, I, I was like, okay, what were what were the old you know Spanish um, you know, Mexican slash Spanish uh, cattle-like? Well, they were mostly grown for cattle. Um, they they weren't very big. Um, and, uh, they were a lot smaller than the modern dairy cow, which is a giant animal bred to be really big, bred to be a machine that, uh, that puts out milk. Um, and so moving them out of harm's way has already been really tricky when we've had these um, sporadic spring floods. But if- right if the conditions are right and we get a really big flood, that's gonna be a a, a catastrophe. Then you think about their manure and their, you know, these giant manure pits that they have, and those just sort of getting washed into this water. Um, And one thing I should say is this, you know, when these floods happen, at a substantial scale, you got water standing around for months and months. And it right. is not fun to think about. And I think that there was a Tulare Lake like bed flood in the 80s. And, um, and some of that water stuck around for a year. Wow. And it is not fun to think about uh, sort of standing water with, you know, giant amounts of um, cow manure and, you Dead know. Dead cows potentially dead you know massive uh, dead you know cow carcasses um uh effluent or- from
1: oil rigs i mean this that-
3: oil that we're talking about and <laughs> right. you know Katie Katie you you know you asked in your you know in your outline you are asking about like what does that do to the soil um i don't know i don't know if anyone knows um some of this stuff will stick around in the soil it's um, it's not not a great situation um, but what we do know is that it all ends up in um, in the water in the in the yeah. groundwater and this is an area that already has uh, incredibly polluted groundwater. There's already high levels of nitrate and pesticides in these aquifers uh, and there's a real environmental justice situation uh, here because. It's mostly farm worker communities that live in these areas, especially in the rural parts. And um, they already have this incredibly polluted water. There's already, you know, lots and lots of money, um, very low income people buying, um, you know, bottled water because the water is not safe to drink. That's right. Um, And and so we're looking at um, a real catastrophe on that level. Like, how are we going to filter that water um, what is going to happen? And, you know, one thing else that I, I didn't get in my piece, but I was thinking about is just apart from these horrible problems that we're talking about now, about contamination of, of the groundwater, um, would this be, would this past winter, which was so wet, um, so much rain, so much snowpack coming down, um, would it refill the aquifers, which have been, you know, drained? Um, over the past 25 years, you know, in a dramatic way, just like they've mm-hmm. been way over pumped. Will yep. there at least be some recharge? And, um, you know, basically, you know, the answer is, you know, maybe enough to offset one drought year, but we've had, you know, eight, eight drought years in the past 12 years or something like that. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so the amount of recharge is going to be, you know, was, I should say, because the season's basically over, fairly marginal i mean it was great and you know substantial um but at the scale of withdrawal it's you know it's not it's no game changer um so right. all of california's drought problems which we, are what we're usually talking about and we've probably talked about on the show are still there um <laughs> and you know the, the place could go into drought next year um or it could have another catac- you know cataclysmic winter next year i mean it's right. just very unpredictable um but um but yeah, so that's that's the basic situation. There's a lot of unknowns, um, but none of it looks good.
1: You know, uh, uh, let me ask you this. Are you aware of any kind of major state or federal preparation underway in anticipation of the war- worsening flooding, like evacuation? And then also, didn't we talk about the Oroville Dam like almost failing a few years ago, and then somehow yeah. they managed to... Like that would also be uh, that's like one of the key pieces of infrastructure that keeps the water where it's supposed to be instead yeah, of you it's know one of the dams
3: and 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 what oh let me just say something else about this um, this situation in the um, in the San Joaquin Valley which is so you know basically the Central Valley you get Sacramento Valley which is the northern part San Joaquin right. Valley which is the middle and Tulare Basin which is the bottom. And the San Joaquin Valley also has a, this tremendous snowpack um, coming down. Uh-huh. Um, and um, and so one of the things that I interviewed um, Dr. Swain for my piece, this great UCLA scientist, and, you know, what he told me was that, um, you know, we know there is going to be flooding because if you do the math, there's just too much water up there to be handled by this infrastructure. Uh-huh. Um, but... Is it going to be catastrophic flooding or minimal flooding? It's really all based on how fast the snow melts, and what you right. really pray for is a very slow, orderly snowpack. You pay f- you you pray for a cool spring and early summer right. in the in the Sierra Nevada foothills, Sierra Nevada uh, range, um, and but he said, you know, even in, under the best case scenario. Um, of a very, you know, orderly snowpack. Like I said, there's still going to be, you're still going to get part of Tulare Lake refilling. It's just going to happen. Um, but, you know, potentially non-catastrophic. But you've got all this water coming down and there is just so much chance for the infrastructure to fail under the pressure of all this water. Right. And so you could get infrastructure failure, the, um, you know, the the various... Flood control um, and sort of water control infrastructure that they have out there um, is aging. It's not very well kept. uh, Astonishingly, Uh, I think that's just mind-bending, considering how big agriculture is there. And um, and so you could get breakages, and you could get places even in the San Joaquin Valley that are you know where the water does flow out to the sea. If it stays in the rivers, you can get this. You can get infrastructure failure, and you can get really bad flooding there too. Yeah. Um, And uh, and so what you're praying for is um, is something that hasn't happened very often recently. And that is a very cool spring. We've had very hot uh, springs and summers in the Central Valley uh, for a while now. Um, Yeah. And And aren't we
1: expecting a massive heat wave? I I know it was the Pacific Northwest, but still, I mean, I'm assuming that California will absorb some of that. It's it certainly,
3: it certainly plausible and it certainly, it, it certainly could happen. But, yeah, once again, the Pacific Northwest is about to be under or maybe already is moving into unusually hot temperatures and those could get really bad. But, yeah, that, that could easily happen in California. It would almost be surprising if it didn't.
1: Yeah, um, that's how I feel. I mean, I, I'm just waiting every day to hear some, yeah. you know, like, as it gets warmer, um, to hear that some massive piece of infrastructure has failed and the, you know, level of water is just, you know, tripled and yeah. whatever reservoir, you know, all of that stuff. And, yeah, I mean, so
3: the other scenario is that you get a big early melt and it just overwhelms everything. And it's not an mm. infrastructure failure. It's just the infrastructure got overwhelmed. But right. to, your, to your question, yes, um, you know, the state water officials are in the region trying to figure out what to do. But I, I think they've got um, – a bigger problem than can be handled um right and yeah there are there are farm worker communities um in the old lake bed or on the edges of the old lake bed um uh-huh. but you know one of the things that um that has happened is that there's been so much subsidence and that is when you withdraw groundwater mm. at an unsustainable pace the land literally sinks right um, and this is an uneven process And so the old lake bed, because of so much subsidence in the area in the past 20 years from groundwater over extraction, um, it's kind of unpredictable. They're having a hard time figuring out where all the water is going to go because the landscape has changed. You usually don't think of landscape, you know, things like elevation changing in, you know, the amount of time it takes to, you know, get through high school, uh, but <laughs> no, you, and, you don't. Know, we think about, think about it in a long, sort of long term, but like there has been significant subsidence in the past 10 years. Like we're talking wow. about multiple feet of subsidence. And like I said, it's not like everything sinks uh, sinks at the same pace. It's changing the elevation and changing water um, directions, like where water would flow. And so that's something else wow. that is flomoxing um, people and, um, and yeah, and so it's just, um, it's just a really grim situation that is going to require constant attention for the next two months.
1: And look at how prescient you were, Tom, in digging this up in your book three years ago and advertising that this was an impending, uh, potentially cataclysmic event. Before we finish up here, which unfortunately we have to do in a couple of minutes, I just want to talk a little bit about what the impact for the rest of America will be when when and if, if and when, this region can no longer produce? Because as we just described, you know, if the water is as polluted as we anticipate, it spreads out over a lot of arable land. I don't think we're going to be growing crops in that land anytime soon. W- what is the consumer side of this look like, right? I mean, we talked about <laughs> supply chain disruption during COVID. But I yeah. mean, this is going to be epic. Like, what what are we looking at here?
3: Well, um, one of the things that I think about is that we've had this period for the last couple of years of inflation and inflation of food prices, and it's really kind of caused a lot of political upheaval. Um, and it's kind of, you know, you know, inspired. It's been part of the inflation that's inspired the Federal Reserve to, ru- to raise interest rates and potentially trigger a recession. And we've seen food prices coming down recently. They're still Pretty high, but they're, they're, you know we've seen it kind of coming down, and here we are heading into an election year, right? Yeah, uh, election year, elections next year, and you know things are really volatile out there. And what we could see is you know if we get you know let me just talk about the immediate effect. If we get you know really catastrophic flooding in this area, it could cause the the price of um, you know things like let's say milk um, the Milk market is pretty regional, so it could be. I mean, I think it would trickle throughout the country, but it could, you know, be a spike in milk prices on the West Coast, western part of the United States. Sure. Um, And you know, we heard a lot of you know, real, um, I think, um, legitimate complaining about from families who live on a tight economic margin about suddenly a gallon of milk, you know, rising. A couple bucks a gallon, and what that does to um, to family budgets. We we could see that happen again. Um, There are various fruits and vegetables that come out of that region. A lot of kind of stone fruit. Um, What else? Um, You know, there are some salad greens. Uh, You know, obviously nuts. Nuts are a thing that you know I see as. I see nuts as a bit of a luxury product. Like I do too. If I,
1: yeah.
3: If I like almonds and the almond price spikes um, dramatically, I'm not too. Um, I'm not too upset to turn to peanuts, let's say, or, or whatever. Uh, which right. can be, you know, are on a totally different ecology and economy. Um, nuts, spikes in nut prices don't um, don't worry me as much. I think they're. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a frivolous, it's a good use of some of that land, but, you know, I'm famously on record saying that it's, uh, frivolous to, to devote quite so much land to it in that, in that area, almost pistachios. Right. Um, huge but, waters, you know, the water suckers to
1: the nth degree, right? I mean. Yeah.
3: But then, you know, and they're they're permanent, so they need a lot, they need water every year. So if you have a bad water year, you can't fallow your almonds because you're going to lose a huge investment. Um, that's one mm. of the problems with them. But um, now longer term, you know, if this turns into a real, um, I'm not going to swear on your radio program, but a real <laughs> bleep show um, in, um, in in that area and the soil, there's like, you know, significant soil degradation from chemicals. The groundwater is awful. The water's hanging around and causing problems. And, you know, it disrupts agriculture for a number of years. I mean, I think it just kind of goes back to the thesis of my book that it puts a lot of pressure. And this is something I was trying to sort of start a conversation about in my book. It puts a lot of pressure on other parts of the country to pick up the slack and grow the fruits and vegetables, um, that we rely on California for to grow them more in other parts of the country. Um, And and I think that, you know, I I think you could see like a longer term food inflation that I think would inspire, I I hope, I hope policymakers would step in and say, okay, we need to, you know, really invest in, you know, regional fruit and vegetable production. We need to figure out how to support farmers, how to, you know, create a food shed, that can make up for this, you know, this shortfall from California. And I think that has to happen anyway, and this could be a real accelerant for it. But, you know, let's not not sleep on the sort of destabilizing effect of food inflation going into an election (laughs) with um, some, you know, true, you know, oddballs, uh, uh, you know, rising to the top as contenders uh, from a certain party (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh, and so um, so yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that that, that scares me right now. And yeah. you know, the other thing is, I just think about the people who live in the region who right. tend to be low income. They tend to be Latino farm workers. Um, you know, many of them undocumented. The very people who feed us. Um, And their lives, I mean, you know, the other thing is like the economic fallout from that, if you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres, however it turns out, flooding the Central Valley, that's lost work for people who live on a very, very tight margin as it is with a very porous, um, you know, safety net, oftentimes no safety net at all if they're undocumented uh, and then there's just sort of getting people out of harm's way during a flood. And you mentioned that um, event in Oroville, uh, the Oroville Dam in 2017, I believe it was, when yeah. the Oroville Dam almost burst and the California, this is north of the region we're talking about, but it's in the Central Valley. And um, and the water officials saw fit to issue an evacuation order for several hundred thousand people um, downstream. And it, you know, went about this, you were predicting a thing like this, um, everyone got in their car and tried to get the hell out of there and the highway became a, a bloody parking lot. Wow. And, um, and luckily the dam didn't burst. Uh, but, um, yeah, all of that keeps, literally does keep me up at night. This is, I've written about a lot of, you know, terrifying stuff in my career, um, <laughs> if you cover uh, industrial food production. You end up doing that. And this is by far the most terrifying thing. It's worse than, it it, it scares me more than superbugs from antibiotic-resistant pathogens. Really? Yeah. I mean, just everything. This this just terrifies me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, and that, unfortunately, we have to say goodbye. Tom, uh, people, again, the book is Perilous Bounty. Um, Pick up a copy because um, there is so much great content in there. Not this is the least, not the least of it, but certainly um, one of one of many interesting chapters. And I, I love your point, Tom. That this will hopefully encourage. I mean, should the worst happen, it will accelerate the development of uh, a more regional food system, which is something that we take very seriously here in the Northeast, for example. Um, But I think uh, other parts of the country are slower to embrace that idea. So, um, Tom, thank you so, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And last week, too, with our abortive, our aborted mission. But um, uh, it's always a joy to talk to you. Please stay in touch. And uh, thanks, as always, to my sponsors. And thank you for tuning into this program. Uh, We'll see you next time. That's all for now. And thanks back to you, Katie. You betcha. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.